All right, everybody. Hello, hello. Last night of Vacation Bible School, I'm curious uh, what you guys have thought about it. Have you enjoyed the week? Has it been all right? Yes? Yeah. Don't anybody answer at once. Rachel? Good week? Yeah. Victoria? Yeah. Anybody else want to share anything? Lily? I'm going to call on you now. Yeah. Been okay? Okay, good. All right, well, let's see. Uh, if I am correct, you guys have talked about Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal plus 400 other prophets of Ashtaroth. Is that correct? I think Alex talked about that. And then you talked about Red Sea Crossing. Did you talk about that? And you talked about the flood. Is that right? All right. Uh, so I am going to talk to you about the resurrection. But I'm not just going to talk about the resurrection. I want to Use the Bible and use some common sense and use some logic to prove the resurrection to you. Uh, just a quick show of hands. Who believes that Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah. Um, if I was a skeptic, if I was an atheist, if I was someone seeking the truth and wondering about it, or just I was rabidly against that and I was going to challenge you on it, could you prove to me that Jesus rose from the dead? Or would it just be, I have a warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart? Nothing in and of itself. As a foundation, as a starting point, nothing wrong with that. But if that's all you've got, uh, you need a little bit more because you're going to be challenged, especially in a few years or maybe very sh even shorter than that. You're going to go to universities. You're going to be sitting in classes, philosophy classes, world religion classes. You're going to be sitting in world history classes. And you're going to be challenged in every possible way you could be challenged on what right now you're willing to raise your hand and say, I believe that. It's going to be a lot harder to say that when you're even in a class this big, if not twice as big, and you may be one of only two, three, maybe one person in that class who's willing to say they believe that and that means everybody else is going to say they don't believe that and they're going to look at you funny uh, and they're going to challenge you on whether or not you can prove what you believe. So that's what I want to talk to you about. Um, let's start and I want you guys to have your Bibles because I want you guys to do some reading as we go through this. But just to kind of start things off, let's start with 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4. Somebody read that please. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4. Whoever gets there first, go ahead and read it out loud. All right, Rachel, go ahead. Now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I, I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. All right, so all you get at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, first four verses, is just Paul basically saying what you guys just a minute ago raised your hand and said you believe. All he starts with is Jesus died. Three days later, rose again. I already asked you that question. You already shoved me your hands. We're all in agreement that Jesus died and rose again. He doesn't give you any proof there. He doesn't give you any evidence there. He doesn't do anything to try to assuage your position or solidify your position one way or the other. He just states it as a fact. He states it as an axiom. Jesus died and rose again. So let's keep reading. Rachel, if you don't mind, please, 5 through 9. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. All right. He gives you, after he states it as a fact Jesus rose, he says, and here is the eyewitness testimony uh, testimony or givers who would uh, verify what I'm saying is true. Here are the people who, if you ask them, they wouldn't just say, yes, I believe. They would say, yes, I saw. That carries a little bit more weight than just one's conviction. So he gives you one, two, three, four, five, six different, not people, but clusters of people. Here's an individual. Here's a dozen he mentions, or at least the title is a dozen. Here's 500. Here's another individual. Here's another dozen. Here's another individual. You've got over 500 people there. And that this is not even a comprehensive list. This is not everybody that just your Bible talks about that says, I saw him. I know he was risen from the dead. I don't just think it. I know it. I don't just believe it. I know it. So let's start. Let's take these one by one. And I want somebody else to read this time. Somebody read Luke chapter 24. And the verse is going to be 13 through 35. Luke 24, 13 through 35. Bit of a read, so first one to get there. It is going to be verse 13 through 35, Luke 24. Don't be shy. Walter, giddy up. Yes, you. you. Yes, you. Oh. What do you think yes, Walter means? Yeah. No, no, I would never do that. Giddy up. <laughs> that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. Emmaus. This is right after Jesus rose, okay? About seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? They, and they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cle Cleopas. Cleopas, go ahead. Cleopas. Answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? Who, at, who does not know the, the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and, would, and were before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered up to him the condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and to sum all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. More, more, moreover, some woman of our company amazes. They were at the tomb early in the morning when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, 
his in inner You have a different translation than I do. Yeah. Where are you at? It's probably, it's like seven. And being in Moses, the prophets, he interpreted to them. Yeah. Interpreted to them. Interpreted to them. And all the scriptures and mm -hmm. mysteries concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. So he was up, up at the table with them. He took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our heart burn within us while we talked to us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven that those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's it. Big reading. All of that was for the very last verse. Those two guys, they go back and they say, we saw the Lord just like happened to Simon, which is Cephas. That's it. That's the reference. But the reason I made him read six paragraphs or 16 paragraphs or however long it was, there's a lot of text, was because Paul doesn't even mention that. Paul doesn't even talk about those two people on the road to Emmaus. He just leaves that out, not like it didn't happen or anything. It's just this, this is not supposed to be some comprehensive list. He's just telling you, here's a bunch of people who can verify the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Did you raise your hand? Or are you just scratching your face? All right. So, but in the text that he uh, cites, he says, and Cephas saw him. That's Peter. Peter, Cephas, Simon. Those are all from the same person, Simon Peter. Cephas is just another uh, uh, language version of his word, his name. So we're going to get to the rest of this in just a second. Someone else is going to pick up where he left off in 36 to 43. But I want you to notice that Cephas is singled out because apparently, based on this reading and that, you learn that Jesus specifically came in front of and was seen just by Peter, just by Simon, just by Cephas. But Paul, as he's talking about that, doesn't even mention these, this amazing thing that happens in Luke 24. On the day that he's resurrected, everybody's buzzing about it. Everyone's talking about it. What's going on? Have you heard the rumors? Jesus is not in the tomb. And all these people are talking. These two cats are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears to them. And he disguises his face miraculously so they can't recognize that it's Jesus. And being all coy and, and sly, he says, what are you guys talking about? Like he doesn't know. And they're like, well, have you heard, you stranger? There's this person, Jesus, he died, and then we can't find his body. We don't know what's going on. All the crazy things happening. And Jesus says, tell me more. Like he doesn't know. And so they travel and they're talking, and then they go into the town with him, and then they sit down, they break bread together. And after Jesus breaks bread with them and he offers a prayer for the food, it says their eyes were open. He allowed them to recognize him. And as soon as they saw and they knew that was Jesus, gone, vanished, disappears. And then... He'll reappear in a second. And so these guys are, are flipping out. And like, they, did, 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 you, did you not know it? I kind of could tell. I could tell. Like, like, sure you could. But I could tell. Like, I could just feel it. Couldn't you tell? I could tell. So they run back to Jerusalem. And they go to the disciples. And they find them there. And they say, we've seen the Lord. It happened just like the rumors are saying when he appeared to Cephas. And then 30 years later, Paul will reference that 
right there in 1 Corinthians 15. All right, let's pick up where we left off. Someone else read now, because Paul also says he was seen by Cephas and the 12. Somebody read Luke 24, 36 through 43. Luke 24, 36 through 43. So, this is right where we left off. Those guys come, they tell the story, and then while they're talking, just as quickly as Jesus disappeared, there he is. He's reappeared. Now he's in the room. And now everyone freaks out because they think, ah, it's a spirit. Like, like if, you're, if we're in this room, all of a sudden I look over, and there's Jesus sitting there. Your reaction would be their reaction. You'd go, ah, because that's what they did. They freaked out. And he says, everyone calm down. It's me. And at first they thought, it's not Jesus. It's a vision. It's a ghost. And so he says, I'm going to prove to you that I'm not a ghost. Has anybody seen a Christmas carol? And of course, it hadn't been come out yet, so they hadn't seen that. So he said, does that mean I have five minutes? No. Oh, okay. That's fine. So he says, somebody give me something to eat. So they give him some fish and honeycomb, which sounds disgusting, but they were juice. And so he eats in front of them to show them that he's not a ghost. In other words, a ghost, if a ghost was here, and if a ghost ate some honeycomb, you'd see the little particles of honeycomb all go through their body, like happens with ghosts, you know. But he's not a ghost. So he eats, and they can't see the food. So they know he's real. He's a flesh and blood being. He's not, he's not a vision. He's not a spirit. He's flesh and blood. He says, look, here's my hands. Here's my feet. And they're, they're amazed. So Paul references that. The 12. Even though it's not technically 12, there's only 11 there because Thomas wasn't there, but they're the 12 because that's just like the, the summary of who they are. Up next, somebody read Matthew 28. Caleb, you can take this one. Yeah, you can. You already have it? All right, Lily, giddy up. Matthew 28, verse 10. Do not be afraid. Go tell my brother to go to Galilee, Galilee and they will see me. That's it. That's the only text. That's, that's the best I can give you for what Paul may be referring to because he says 500 brethren saw him. There's not a text specifically saying 500 people in particular saw him, but Jesus makes this reference when he's talking to people and saying, hey, you're really excited. I'm here. Go tell the brethren I will see them soon. And there's a lot of brethren who'd be excited about him. That may be the explanation for those 500. But even if it's not, Paul says it. He says many of them are still alive today. You can go ask them. So it's not some made up thing. Uh, James, he references James, that'd be the half-brother of Jesus. We have no verse for that. There's no text other than 1 Corinthians 15. But Paul's point is, James saw him, James uh, proved it. In fact, if you go to John chapter 7, but don't because we don't have time. In John chapter 7, when Jesus is still alive, he's in the middle of his ministry, his half-brothers are with him, and they don't believe he's the Messiah. James is among them. But later on, James will be a pivotal, powerful, important, influential Christian in the early church, what changed? Well, he saw the risen Savior, and he recognized his half-brother is, in fact, the Messiah. So James saw him. He also references, once again, the apostles. Somebody read John chapter 20. Can I read again? Yeah, I don't care. Okay. 26 through 29. John 20, 26 through 29. 
disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, whose silver sins ye remite, ye are remited into them, and whose silver sins ye return, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, that was not with them when Jesus came. Yep. The other that's fine, keep going. Okay. The other disciples therefore said unto them, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Excited, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my fingers into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days against his disciples were with him, and Thomas with them, then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, reach hither thy hands, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto them, My Lord and my God, Jesus said unto them, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Excellent. Thank you. All right. One person saw him. Eleven people. They're called the twelve, but there were only eleven at the time. Saw him. Some five hundred saw him. James saw him. And then finally, when those eleven are all back together, again Jesus appears to them. But once again, they're they're in fact ten this time because Judas is dead and Thomas isn't there. He appears to them. Later he comes back, this time with Thomas in the room, and he says to Thomas, here's my hand, here's the evidence, you can examine it as much as you want. Here's my side, you can examine the evidence as much as you want. And Thomas doesn't examine a bit of it. He sees, he believes, he drops to his knees, that rhymes, 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 and he confesses, my Lord and my God. So once more, the Apostle Psalm. We don't need to read Acts chapter 9, because we're all very familiar with that, I'm sure. Paul is on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. He sees the Lord, resurrected, struck blind, and then goes and obeys the gospel. Paul's point is, when he writes 1 Corinthians 15, the Lord rose, and here is evidence after evidence after a whole lot of evidence after evidence after evidence after myself being more evidence that he is risen alive indeed. Here's the thing. 500 people said they saw him, right? You would think that's very compelling evidence. But there is such a thing as a shared delusion. Has anyone ever heard that term before? No. Rachel, you want to tell us what a shared delusion is? It's, yeah, it, it shows you how easily manipulated the mind can be. Like right now I'm wearing a, like a dark blue shirt, right? But if I came back like a month later, even a year later, and I said, remember when I taught you guys in VBS and I made that point about that dark red shirt I was wearing? All of you might want to say, no, it was a blue shirt. I could possibly, I have the ability to convince you that it was a blue shirt to the point where, or a red shirt, to the point where 20 years later, you might be telling your kids about me, because of course you will. And you'll say he was wearing a red shirt and you will be convinced that you could close your eyes and see it as plain as day. It is possible for your mind to play tricks on you because that's what your mind does. Your mind is the one that's in charge of all that you see, think, smell, touch, taste, and remember. 
500 people, all they need is one, two, maybe 12 people to lie and convince them and trick them that they saw something they didn't. And it is possible. If we have to prove the resurrection happened, we must play the role of skeptics. It is possible that 500 people could be subject to a shared delusion. A conspiracy of 500, shared delusion. A conspiracy of one doesn't exist. A conspiracy of one is just a lie. One guy coming up with something is not a conspiracy. A conspiracy needs two or more parties. There has to be two people talking about it, or three or four, however. But at least two people have to be conspiring for it to be a conspiracy. If one person is just saying it and it's not true, that's a lie, okay? So if all of Christianity is resting on just one person's testimony, none of us should be buying that can of soup. Twelve people? If 12 people are saying the same thing and it didn't happen, that is a conspiracy. 12 people saying something that did or maybe did not happen is the definition of a conspiracy. And if it didn't happen, that's exactly what it is. These 12 people said something, said they saw something that didn't happen. So where is the actual proof? Because I can take Paul's list of people and I can poke holes in it. I can take Paul's list of people and I can break it apart and I could tear it down and I could walk away. If I went into this thinking he didn't rise, I could if I wanted to walk away still thinking he didn't rise. So where's the proof? Let me answer that question by asking a different question. Where's the, it's a four letter word. What is the word? Body. No. Yes, it's the same thing. Where's the beef? Is anybody familiar with the phrase, where's the beef? It's a very old Wendy's commercial. Oh. They had this commercial with these two, old, uh, three old ladies, and they had a McDonald's burger, and they lifted up the burger, and there's this tiny little patty there, and one of the old ladies said, where's the beef? And then they cut to Wendy's, they have this big giant, the meat's overflowing, you know, it's the whole thing. So where's the beef? Became this big thing in the 80s. I barely remember it, I just remember it being a thing. But the point is, yes, you're right, it's where is the body? That's a question mark. That is not a question mark. Let's just pretend that's not there. Honestly, Victoria, nobody cares. All right. Where's, where's the body? Where's the beef is the point I want you to consider. So somebody open your Bible, or all of you open your Bibles, and somebody read Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. This is going to be what you're going to hear. To 22 through 24. Let's give somebody else a chance to read it first before you get your turn. All these sound all about you. And if Israel hears these words, Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth, a man arrested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you, as you yourselves know, that this Jesus delivered up according to the plan. And for 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 knowledge mm -hmm. uh, of God, you crucified and killed him, and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pain of death, because it was not possible for him to be held. All right, so this is this is like the climax of, of Peter's sermon at the day of Pentecost. And I want you to think about as we read this, uh, who he's talking to, whose actual audience is. All right, Because right now I'm talking to you guys. You all raised your hand a minute ago and said you all believe in the resurrection. You're all, we're all friends here, you know. So I want you to think about Peter's audience. So he starts by saying, you guys have murdered the Christ. Let's keep reading. I'm going to take over, Walter, if that's all right. Verse 25 through 28. 
For David spoke concerning Jesus, quote, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not leave my soul in hell. Neither will you allow your holy one to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You'll make, known, you'll make me full of joy with your countenance, end quote. That's Peter quoting from Psalm 16, which at the time everyone had assumed was David talking about himself. So Paul, uh, Peter continues, Men and brethren, verse 29 through 32, Men and brethren, let me talk to you freely about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his grave is with us to this day. Where's the beef if I want to know where's David? Well, Peter says, grab a shovel and I'll show you. We can find his body. But David was also a prophet. And knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that from the fruit of his loins, that's his descendant to be, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. And he, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that Christ's soul was not left in the grave, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, of whom we are all witnesses. Here is Peter saying, David is dead and buried. He could not have been talking about himself in Psalm 16 when he said that I'm going to, he said, I'm going to rest, but I'm going to rise and I'm going to live and my body will not see corruption. Those, those personal pronouns was not referring to himself. He was speaking on behalf of the Messiah to come. And Peter says that same Messiah was Jesus whom you, he points to the audience, you, you, you crucified. Now, who is it that Peter is talking to? He's talking to the very ones who did the crucifying. That's amazing. And he says to them, you murdered him. He wasn't talking about himself, David wasn't, because you can find his body. Where's the beef? It's right over there. There's his grave. We can dig it up and see. Where's Jesus' grave? Well, it's right over there, but it's empty. Where's the beef? Where's the body? So now I want you to consider this question. Where's the proof is our big question of the hour, right? Okay. Who is asking? Who is not asking this question? Let's start there. Who doesn't want you asking this question? Who doesn't want you considering, where is the body of Jesus? Who wants this whole issue to go away? Who wants you to forget that the body is not to be found? The very people who don't want you asking this question are the people who buried him. The people who killed him and put him in the grave and wiped their hands of him. Those are the ones who are saying, stop asking about the body. Now, isn't that interesting? The very ones who buried him don't want you to worry about where the body is. Because if you did, you'd, you'd know immediately there is no body, and that's bad for them. Why is it bad for them? Go to Matthew chapter 28 and look at verses 11 through 15. Matthew 28, 11 through 15. Does anyone know what time the bell rings? No clue. No clue? Well, I think just you. know that it rings. Matthew what? Thank you. 28, I'm going to read it though, 11 through 15. I want to go faster. Matthew 28, 11 through 15. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch, that is to say some of the guards who watch over the city at night, came into the city and showed the chief priests all the things that were done. What was done? Well, Jesus and an angel and a rock rolled away and a whole big thing, all that. And so when they assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, the elders gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, here's what you'll say. Say, the disciples came at night and stole away the body while we were all asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, he's going to be really mad because that's your whole job is to keep them from doing that. But it's okay. We're going to take care of you. We're going to keep you safe. So they took the money and did as they were told. And that saying is commonly reported by the Jews even to the day of Matthew's writing this book, which is like 40 years later. It was widely, uh, 20 years later, it was widely known all over Judea. Oh yeah, we know the body was missing. We don't know what happened to it, but we know the guards were bribed and told to lie and say the body was stolen. 
hang on. If you have to pay someone to lie to say the body was stolen, what does that tell you? If it is by definition a lie to say the body was stolen, then it is a lie that the body was stolen, right? And if it's a lie, everyone look at me, not the cookies. If it is a lie that the body was stolen, where's the beef, right? Where's the body? If you have to tell someone to lie and say it is stolen, then where did it actually go? Because I know it wasn't stolen because that's the lie, right? And you're paying me to perpetrate a lie, so then what's the actual truth here? Don't worry about it. Don't ask that question. Just lie and say it was stolen. So who doesn't want you asking that question? The people who don't know where the body is. So let's just take that off the board real quick. Okay, now, forget about them. Who's asking? Who does want you to consider where the body is? Who is very interested in you wondering and asking and questioning yourself, where is the body? Who wants you asking that question? I'll give you three people. Peter, or the rest of the apostles in general, and the apostle Paul. Peter wants you considering where the body is. Here's the thing about Peter. Everyone pay attention to this. Peter is a liar. Peter is a known liar. Look at Luke chapter 22, 54 through 57. Luke chapter 22, 54 through 57. I will read it. Then they took him and led him and brought him, this is Jesus, unto the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. And they kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, and they were set down together, and Peter sat down among them. And a certain maiden beheld him as he was sitting by the fire, and looked him this away, and looked him that away, and said, Yeah, you were with Jesus, weren't you? You're one of his disciples, weren't you? And Peter said, I admit it. Is that what Peter said? No, it says, and he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. That is a lie. Peter is a liar. Why did Peter lie? What's the simplest explanation for why Peter lied? I'm asking. He was scared, he was scared of what? Being That's a fair estimation, I would think. Because he, see, I mean, he is within eyeshot of the Lord. Because in a minute, after he denies him two more times, the Lord's going to turn and look at him, which means he's in eyesight of the Lord. So he sees what he's going through. He figures, if I confess that I'm a disciple of his, I'll be going through it too. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't know him. I don't know him. I have nothing to do with him. The rest of the apostles, they're liars too. These guys who are asking you to consider where the body is, these people that you're hanging your entire faith system on are proven liars. Look at Mark chapter 14, verse 31. Mark chapter 14, verse 31. Time period here, as you're turning there, is a few hours earlier than this. Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. He's having his last supper with them. Mark chapter 14, verse 31. He's having his last supper with the disciples. In the midst of the discussion, he says once more to them, I'm going to go away and I'm going to be killed and you guys aren't going to be around when it happens. But Peter speaks up, Mark 14, 31. He speaks up with, with passion. And he says, if I should die with you, so be it, but I will not deny you under any circumstances. This is before he denies him. He's denying he'll deny. I'll never deny you no matter what. And then likewise, they all said the same. 
They all say, yeah, we won't deny you. This is, this is great because times are good right now. They're having dinner. Their bellies are full. They just broke some rolls open. They're having some of that honey butter stuff that you get at Colton's. They're having a wonderful meal. Everything's great. Everybody's happy. Oh, we'll never deny you. This is great. We'll never turn against you. Jump down to Mark 14, verse 50. And the moment comes, they put the, sh- the handcuffs, metaphorically speaking, on the Lord to carry him away. And they all, what? They all forsook him and fled. They turned like cowards and they ran away like cowards after they said they would not do so. That makes them what? They made up. They gave their word and they broke their oath. That's the definition of a liar. Peter is a liar. The rest of the apostles are liars. But then you fast forward to the other side of the cross. 50 days later, Acts 2, 29 through 32 You men of Israel, hear these words, Peter says. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did in the midst of you, and you know he did. He was delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, and you, Peter points at the person who said, crucify him, crucify him. And you, Peter points at the person who said to Pontius Pilate, if you don't kill him, then we're going to tell Caesar, and Caesar will come down hard on you. And you, and you, and you, with all of your wicked hands, have crucified and slayed him. But God has raised him up. And he loose the pains of death because it is not possible that he should be held down by the grave. This is Peter standing on the day of Pentecost looking the murderers of Jesus in the eye. These are not just random people. These are not just spectators. These are the specific very ones who actually did the conspiring. You want to talk about a conspiracy? The actual conspirators of the death of Jesus Christ are in the crowd looking at Peter, not liking what they're hearing, right? Jesus to those people is the ringleader of, a, of a, a horrible, blasphemous sect of the Jews that they need to get rid of. They're going to cut off the head of that snake. We're going to kill Jesus. Now, 50 days later, here comes one of Jesus' lieutenants. Here comes one of his henchmen. Here comes one of his, his dweeb, fisherman, uh, sidekick little buddies. What is Peter to these people? If they're willing to kill Jesus the most influential and infamous rabbi the century had ever seen. If they're willing to kill him, do you think they would have two seconds thought to kill Peter? And yet Peter stands up there, looks him in the eyes and says, you bunch of murderers. What do you call that? Is that not bravery? But why did he lie? Why is he not scared now? Who wants you asking the question, where's the body? Who's the one asking the question in this sermon? He's saying, where's the body? The same lying coward who ran away from Jesus is willing to stand there and, if necessary, die for Jesus. Why? I'm supposed to believe by the atheist, by the skeptic, by the philosopher teacher, by the world history teacher, by all those kind of people. I'm supposed to believe that Peter and the other apostles got together after Jesus died and stayed dead and stole his body in the middle of the night. But I don't know how they got past those guards because they didn't know what happened either. In fact, their story was an angel. But they got past the guards. They snuck the body out, buried it somewhere no one's ever found it, and then went out and started preaching this message they knew was a lie. And then when they were threatened, they kept preaching the lie. And then when they started to be killed, one by one by one, they all kept preaching the same lie, not one of them breaking ranks. I'm supposed to believe that. That's a fairy tale. That's a fantasy. What they'll say to you in college is, you believe in the resurrection, you believe in a fairy tale. But what I will say is, that's a fairy tale. The fairy tale is that 12 guys died for a lie. Nobody dies for a lie. 
You will lie for a lie. You will suffer for a lie. You will be punished for a lie. You might die accidentally trying to defend a lie. You might be killed fighting for a lie. But you will not go merrily to the guillotine. You will not go singing as you go to the chopping block, to the mouth of the lion, to the cauldron of boiling oil. You will not go to the executioner's blade confident if you know you're a liar. Nobody does that. And it happened once, two, three times on lady, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, in fact, twelve, thirteen, fourteen times. That's ludicrous. If it's not true. Peter was crucified, it is said, upside down. Andrew, crucified by hanging. James was beheaded. John exiled. Philip hanged. Thomas impaled with spears. Bartholomew, Matthew also impaled. Bartholomew flayed. You know what it means to be flayed? Hmm? Lily, you want to say it? You know what it is? No, no, I they take the knife and they start right here and they make a long incision and they start peeling your skin back while you're still alive. And every time they peel it, they will ask you the same question, do you deny? And Thomas, as he is being flayed, oh, uh, Bartholomew, as he is being flayed alive, his skin sliced off his body. So he is just a, a blood oozing husk of flesh. He would not deny the Christ. James was stoned. Simon was crucified. Thaddeus was shot with arrows. Every single one of them, except for Jesus, who was, or John who was exiled, every other one of them, died by violent execution if even is that my five minutes if even one of them i got it <laughs> if even one of them said please stop slicing my skin off my body i made it all up if just one of them said please don't bludgeon my head with a giant boulder stone if just one of them said please don't slice my head off don't Capitate my head off my shoulders. If just one of them said, please don't kill me, I made it all up. I promise you we'd be hearing about it nonstop. The whole house of Christian cards would have crumbled, but not one of them did. But even if one of them had, you know what you would say? You would say they were just cowards. They've already proven they were cowards. They were willing to run away from him when he was alive. And yet when he's supposed to be dead, they're running to the grave for him. That doesn't make any sense. Not a one of them turned their back because they knew it wasn't a lie. They knew it was the truth. They died for it, not because it's a lie. Because they knew there is no beef. He's ascended into heaven. Last one and then I'm done. You got all these people. And what does say? Paul says, Last of all, he was seen by me, one born out of due season, because I persecuted the church of God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. I persecuted the church of God. Paul, Paul was on the winning team. The Christians were losing because the Christians were being killed. And they weren't fighting back. They were being caught, they were being stoned, they were being executed, and Paul was the executor. Paul was the one stoning them. Paul was the one rounding them up, going to hunt them, going to fight them, and he was winning. Paul was on the winning team. Why did Paul change? Paul is the single greatest proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's a historical figure. He really did what he did. There are records of him outside of the Bible. He's a real person who lived and who died for a thing that he knew was true. But why on earth did he change teams? What's the only explanation? He was winning. Why did he switch sides? He goes into Damascus looking to hunt down and kill Christians. When he, after he's there for a week, he's out of Damascus being led over the wall in a basket by the brethren he was going to kill to escape being murdered by the people he went into Damascus to kill people with. Right? You see what I'm saying? He goes into Damascus with, let's say, two other guys to go kill Christians. And then after a week, those two guys are trying to kill him, and the people he's trying to kill are trying to rescue him. What on earth happened? 
he saw something that made him completely change sides. And he stuck with that side till death. Paul's the single greatest proof of the resurrection. And if not Paul, then Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, Simon, Thaddeus. Because every single one of them were willing to die, and all of them did, singing as they did. Because they knew Jesus rose. So, if you want proof of the resurrection, I'm not going to say, look, I found this ancient document that has Jesus, you know, like the Bigfoot sighting, you know, doing the walk. And there's this pr- proof that Jesus, th- th- no, no. If you want proof of the resurrection, use the brain that God gave you. Use your mind. Be logical about it. The only logical explanation that you would have for Peter willing to deny him to save his skin when Jesus is still alive and could theoretically still get out of his predicament and then being willing to lose his skin, in the case of Bartholomew, literally being willing to die after he's supposed to be dead and buried. The only explanation for that change is if he rose. The only thing that makes sense, the only thing that makes sense is that he rose. Anything else is foolishness. Anything else is a fairy tale. Any comments or questions? Yes, now you can get your cookies. Class dismissed.